0: We're going to receive uh, two passages of scripture this morning, one from the Psalms and one from the Gospels. Um, This is an an open invitation if someone would like to read the passage this morning. I know we haven't printed off worship guides this morning, but if you wanted to read, uh, there are worship guides sitting in front on the music stands if you want to. Caroline, I take you standing as a sign you want to read, so yeah, go ahead, do that. And then Marie over here was doing her awesome things over here, so thank you, Marie.
1: morning. Psalm 91 verses 1 to 2 and 9 to 16. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. For he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With the long with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation.
0: Thanks, Caroline. I invite you to take a moment and sit with a, a word, a phrase, an image that maybe caught your attention this morning. And there'll be opportunity to interact with that, but I invite you just to be patient in the stillness of God's presence and see what he's drawing to your mind. A couple of things came to my mind as I sat with this passage this week verse 1 has the line that we will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And as we start Lent, as we start a season of shadows, it might be good to remember that shadows aren't all bad. And shadows can, in fact, be a comforting image under certain contexts. In this case, shadows signify closeness and protection, a sense of rest and relief. I think of, for example, shade on a hot day. You want to be in the shadow. So shadows sometimes can be a, a comforting image, not all doom and gloom as we think about Lent. I also want to draw attention to how the psalm ends. How, uh, you see it there in verse 14. Because he loves me. And acknowledges my name. What I like about that, that bookend statement there, is that God's response to us isn't because of our innate greatness or a list of accomplishments that we can submit to him. God's pres- presence and provision is never earned. It's a byproduct of relationship. We get to enjoy God's presence and provision because we love Him, and we call on His name. Now, maybe this stood out to you as uh, the psalm was read. Maybe there's some words there that sound kind of familiar, and you maybe heard them in a New Testament context. Yes, hang on to that because that will be showing up in in the gospel passage in just a little bit. But also, I want to name this thing because it not only just because it shows up in our second passage, but Because read a certain way, or read in isolation, this psalm seems to make some rock-solid blanket statements along the lines of if you trust God enough, if you're close enough to God, no harm will come to you. Maybe you caught that as the psalm was read there in verses 9 and 10. And maybe that caught you by a surprise maybe you didn't know what to do with that. Maybe you're different than me, but from my experience, my life experiences don't seem to support that line of thinking. Unless though it implies that no one trusts God enough to reap those benefits. So how do we dig into this? Well, for starters, it might be helpful to remember that Psalms aren't doctrinal statements. Um, Maybe that's saying the obvious, or maybe that's controversial to you. I don't know. Um, The Psalms are very important. There's truth in the Psalms. We can learn and infer a lot about God, his character, and how he interacts with the world. But these are songs. These are tried and true songs. These are relatable and timely, melodic reflections from individuals and communities based on their experiences and understandings of God. One commentator I read this week suggested that perhaps this psalm doesn't address uh, you in an individual sense, but more as a plural or as a community. It would be the equivalent of looking at how God brought his people as a whole through the desert under Moses into the promised land, And though, you know, acknowledging that individually, many people did not receive the fullness of this blessing. This take, this perspective has some merit. I'm not sure if I'm a fan of it, but I will say it's worth considering. And it's a helpful helpful, um, counterpoint, let's say, to the tendencies we can often read the Bible with. Like this me-centered approach to reading the Bible. But staying with the psalm and digging with it a little more, we read in verses later on, in verses 14 and 15, things like, I will protect him, and I will be with him in trouble. So it's safe to say that this psalm assumes hardship and suffering but also simultaneously saying no disaster or harm will come so what's up with the mixed messages how do we how do we deal with that perhaps this psalm is not saying that god's people are exempt from difficulties this is a looking back kind of song this is the perspective of someone who has personally endured tough stuff and it's maybe come through on the other side or someone who's taken in the history and the witness of God's people and have come to this conclusion. This is the perspective of someone who's taken in the stories of God's people, which has led them to the confidence that no matter what happens, God has it covered and God will cover you with his loving care. This confidence then that is in the flow of this psalm comes from focusing on the big picture. Yes, the details matter. The day-by-day, season-by-season hardship and heartbreak hurts God, too. That's not to be glossed over. That's not to be forgotten or diminished. But this truth and reality of hardship and suffering cannot be divorced from what is also real and true. That suffering does not separate God from his people and his love that God is not absent when things are hard, but present and active, that God is bigger than our trials, and that the trials don't win. Those are some of my thoughts on this psalm. I invite you to sit with uh, the reflection questions that are there, and maybe there's a way for you to engage the psalm this morning and, and make the connections to your own life maybe to the past, maybe things you're praying about right now. And maybe there's something that uh, is in the psalm or in what I shared or in these questions that you would like to respond to this morning. And I'll just read these questions out loud and then leave space for response. What does trusting God and dwelling with him look like for you? What does trusting God and dwelling with him look like for you? When was a time in your life that God protected you and brought you through danger? When is the time that God protected you and brought you through danger? And bringing the questions more to the, per- to the, to the present, what troubles are you facing? How is God revealing his love for you right in the middle of this difficulty? They're having a great time outside. I love that. There's space here to respond. If anybody has something that they feel nudged to share, opportunity to come to microphone, or if you're a little shy and don't want to be to the front, I'm sure someone from the back will walk a microphone to you if you raise your hand. Is there anyone who wants to share something this morning? We're gonna move to our next passage and we're gonna read from uh, Luke chapter four. Is there someone who would like to read uh, for us Luke chapter four, verses one to 13? The text will be on the screen, but it's also on the worship guide in the stand if you wanna read. And if not, of course, I'll do the reading. All right, reading from Luke four. Jesus, Full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For... It is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, until an opportune time. This is a story of Jesus that I think I had a tendency to skim over a lot. It's kind of usually earlier in the Gospels when things are still supposed to be kind of light and fluffy and fun and this just throws off the whole mood and I think as kid, as I read the Bible, you didn't really know what to do with this, and you just kind of moved on to the the happier miracles, because this one was just difficult. It was a downer. But there's a lot that hinges on this story. This story is significant in the life of Jesus and in the flow of Scripture. And there's a couple things about this passage that can be said, and specifically how it relates to, to Lent. This is a passage that not only marks the beginning of Lent, it also marks the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Though we've been highlighting parts of Jesus's ministry since Christmas, Lent takes us back to the beginning of his work and then traces a path to the cross. The number 40 which is used in here for the length of time that Jesus was in the desert, the the number 40 is, is biblical shorthand for a long time. It also connects this story with all the other 40 stories in the Bible. What do I mean? Well, there's the 40 days of rain in the time of Noah in Genesis 7. There's the 40 days when Moses fasted on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments for a second time. That's uh, Exodus 34. Elijah also went 40 days without food in the wilderness when he traveled to Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. And of course, there's the 40 years that Israel wandered the desert, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 8. So this story of Jesus in the desert is supposed to bring to mind these great people and events. It's kind of a subtle clue that means God is about to do something new. If you think about each of those stories, they're on the cusp of God doing something new. Of these connections and allusions, Moses and Elijah are the two that we should really keep in mind the most because they are the two most prominent figures of the Old Testament. To a Jew, Moses and Elijah summarize the account of what God has revealed to his people. They are representative of the law and the prophets, which is a term used to describe the whole of the Old Testament. Moses was representative of the law and Elijah representative of the prophets. So for the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah were the benchmarks to which all future leaders were compared to. The bar to which the to measure the potential Messiah against. And as you recall from last week, Moses and Elijah are the two figures who meet with Jesus on the mountain when he's transfigured. So 40 is important. Elijah, Moses, these things are important. Um, bringing it to this moment and, and this month, Lent is 40 days long. It's Ash Wednesday to Easter, minus all the Sundays. Lent is, I know it's a weird thing, I, I, you know, but you, know, you gotta have a day off. It's a reverse Sabbath, I guess, yes, which is totally cool. Um, Lent is often marked by a season of fasting, another element that ties this story and this season together. And more than just the beginning of Jesus's ministry, this event is a part of Jesus being prepared for ministry. And I think it's important to to remember this. It would be easy to see what happened in this chapter as an interruption or an obstacle to Jesus's work but that's not how the story is set up. I was kind of sitting with that earlier this week and trying to make connections to you know, either my experiences or the experience I've had with others and reflecting on life hardship. Um, hard, you know, reflecting on life, hardship um, has this way of providing credibility opportunity. Uh, Hardship provides the opportunity for for credibility because when beliefs and character stand the test of time and trial, people take note that there's something real and genuine here. And hardship also provides opportunity because it seems so frequently in life that our sufferings connect us in meaningful ways to others who suffer just like us. Which leads to uh, another observation in the text. This ac- this account, this story, begins with Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, led by that Spirit into the wilderness. Now, this observation alone may be enough for you to process this morning, that sometimes God leads his people into and through difficult seasons. Not for the sake of punishment, but for the sake of personal encounter and interaction in a way that's not available in other circumstances. The way we encounter and meet with God in the wilderness cannot be replicated in other seasons or situations and I'm not highlighting this to discourage you or to conjure up any uncertainty. Uh, this is not a matter of, of not trusting the Spirit, uh, quite the opposite, rather. I think it takes a lot of trust to follow the Spirit into unlikely places, into places you don't want to go. The Spirit is good and trustworthy, but maybe doesn't always work the way we think. The wilderness is both um, formidable and formative. It's tough and fearsome, but also shapes us and changes us, either for the better or for the worse. We cannot leave the wilderness the same which leads us to the devil. This is a new story to you, or maybe if you remember the first time you read this, that was a quite the turn of events. You don't expect him to show up like that. So what, what, what can we say about the devil? What can we say about this? Why can't this just be a situation where Jesus is fasting and praying and the devil leaves him alone? Wouldn't that be nice? Fasting and praying is hard enough as it is, wouldn't you think? well, I'll say this. If there is ever space, opportunity, or circumstance in which you can encounter God and draw near to him, be more confident in how he sees you, and you can hone in on his calling on your life, doesn't it make sense that the devil wants to show up and interfere with that? It's unbelievable. Okay, fine, Mary, you You said yes. But it's the unfortunate unfortunate kind of conclusion that those obstacles and temptations make sense. I I think of wilderness as uh, liminal space. That's a fancy word. Uh, Liminal space is a fancy word of describing of just being on the cusp of something, right on the edge of something new. It's like being stuck between what was and what can be. It's usually uncomfortable, vulnerable space, a space where we're stretched, where the paradigms, our paradigms shift, and so on. In this space, we are malleable. We can be easily transformed by God's spirit, but there's often a confrontation of sorts. And in this case, with Jesus, it's a showdown of good versus evil. And I don't wanna make too much of it, but I wonder how much of a subtle comparison is being made between Jesus and the desert, and Adam and Eve and the garden, right? Jesus is the new Adam. The, The New Testament talks about him that way. The verse actually right before this story links Jesus to Adam. But this time, instead of a garden, we have a desert. Instead of a fruit tree, we have rocks. And the devil shows up again to tempt by distorting God's words. But this time, unlike Adam, Jesus resists the devil's schemes. Jesus' ability to resist temptation isn't about his personal toughness or resolve I don't think it's because he's God, but then that leads us to all sorts of theological questions that we don't have the time to talk about. Um, Jesus' ability to resist is entirely about his full dependence on God. It's not by might that he undermines the devil, but by meekness. And this is counterintuitive to how we're wired. This is not how we're used to the world working. And Jesus does so by quoting scripture, specifically from the book of Deuteronomy. And if there's any of those who like a little extra homework, I encourage you to read Deuteronomy 4-8 to and you can begin to see how God's people at the time of Jesus would have been putting some of these pieces together. Now maybe there's here another thing that throws us for a loop. We already have Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We have the devil showing up when this is supposed to be a time of just Jesus spending time with God. And now we have the devil quoting scripture. What are we supposed to make of that? I think it's a prime example of saying the right thing with the wrong motivation. It's not wrong. It's not right either. Scripture here is being distorted, used to coerce and bring destruction. And that's not the intent of God's words. I've mentioned a couple times how this story ties us back to Israel in the desert and how God brought them through. A couple thoughts I want to say just about the temptations themselves and how that connects can make the argument that the temptations Jesus is presented with are the same temptations that the Israelites faced in the desert and failed. They demanded food instead of trusting God. And yet God relented and gave them manna every day. They demanded a sign of God's presence with them. They tested God. God relented and gave them water out of a rock. They chased after power. They wanted to be like the other nations. They, they chased after other gods. Moses warned them of this tendency that was, they had inside of them. And God still led them into the promised land. Jesus faced these same temptations, but he overcome them. Now in a weird sort of way and it's cool how it kind of flips and still works these temptations that Jesus faced and turned down are the very same expectations the people of Israel had of the Messiah. The Messiah expected sorry the people expected the Messiah would give them free food. They loved the supernatural feedings, they loved it so much. They're like, "Hey, more please!" Uh, just like Moses, let's have more. Let's not just have one day. Let's keep this. Let's keep this going. And Jesus said, "No." The disciples, the religious leaders, the people, they inquired about political power over the enemies. When was Jesus going to rise up as a military figure and conquer their oppressors? Jesus says it's not like that. I don't use power that way. The disciples, the people, the religious leaders, they checked in with Jesus and wanted to know when was the city of Jerusalem and its temple going to be restored to its former and rightful glory. And then Jesus started saying things like, "Well, you don't have to be in Jerusalem to worship God." As Shelley already mentioned, he condemned the people for turning a place of worship into a corrupt marketplace. And he alludes to the fact that the temple will not return to its former glory, but will be destroyed. So simultaneously, Jesus overcomes the temptations that the people of God could not overcome in the desert and turns down the expectations the people had of the Messiah. There's a book called uh, "Upside Down Kingdom," and its author, Don Crable, has a bit of a unique unique take on how to understand these temptations. What if they're to be understood as the devil's enticement to bring the kingdom in ways that are unfaithful to God's plan? What if Jesus brings in the kingdom? to, to by using his power for personal acclaim and popularity, like feeding the hungry. What if Jesus, instead of what he did, instead of taking God's upside-down approach to power, he followed the world's approach of bringing in God's kingdom through power and dominance, just lording it over them? What would have happened if Jesus followed the temptation of religious power, and just utilize the religious structures and authorities for his popularity. This is what the people were expecting. And Jesus said, his kingdom is not that way. There might be an interesting connection for us as we think about the future of our church and how we're supposed to respond and participate with what God is doing as we think about his kingdom and how we can interact with his kingdom and see his kingdom come in this space in our lives, are we gonna follow the Jesus way? How are we gonna respond to obstacles and opportunities? I wanna tie this back to that rock that might be in your hand or in your pocket or the pew beside you. Maybe your burden this morning lines up with one of these temptations. Maybe it's a temptation related to comfort, to food, to making life easier, just about personal pleasure and ease. Maybe it's one that's related to security and safety. Maybe it's one of power where you want control. Maybe your burden, taking it a different angle, maybe your burden lines up with the fact that Jesus isn't meeting your expectations. Maybe that's hard to let go of. Maybe this morning you're just having a hard time letting go. And that's okay. There's grace for that too. want to leave some space right now for uh, personal and public response. So if there's something that's been churning in you that you want to share, there's opportunity to, to say that right now. I want to direct our attention also to just a few guiding questions that can help you interact with this text at a personal level. How do you discern the Spirit's direction in your life? What unlikely directions or places has the Spirit led you? What have your wilderness experiences with God been like? Or maybe you want to interact with this text from a different angle. In what ways have you experienced Scripture distorted or misused? How have you responded when Scripture has been used deceptively or as a weapon? How has Scripture led you in positive ways, brought you life and salvation and safety? And lastly, as we think about how this this story, this encounter prepared Jesus for his ministry and all that would come, How is God shaping and leading you to participate in his kingdom and mission? How is God inviting you to meet with him in the midst of your burdens today? Burdens are these strange things that simultaneously can interfere with our relationship with God, but also be Catalysts and places to meet with God. They can be things that we hang on to, or things that hang over us. They can be things that get in our way. They can be they can be the way themselves. Much like Jesus experienced, the way of the wilderness was a burden, but as a burden where he met his Father and was shaped by his Father. I leave space now for anyone who has something they want to say, either something in response to something I shared or something that stood out to you in the text, a response to the question, or even a prayer request. Maybe there's something you want to share about your own life that you want to bring to our attention.